Dean's one of our newest professional officers here at the Association and he's presenting on using the NMBA decision-making framework. Uh, decision-making framework is a very powerful tool if used in the right circumstances when negotiating care for your patients, so it's quite an important thing to know about. So please join me in welcoming Dean Murphy. Thank you. So the way I would describe this session is it's a little bit of a journey, but we'll get there eventually. And you'll know what I mean as we go along. So yeah, in this session we'll be looking at the decision-making framework. Um, can I have a show of hands who's familiar with that tool? Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, that's why you're here. Um, a, a, a lot of nurses and midwives aren't, um, and I, I only became familiar with it when I, my previous job I was working at, as a nurse educator at Tresillian, so I found out about it then and I'm like, oh my god, I should already know about this, but, so you'll all probably go home and get on the internet and check it out after this talk, um, but yeah, I'll get started. <coughs> Yep, it's working now. So the decision-making framework needs to be understood in context. So these are the areas that inform your decision-making when you're using the tool. So we'll, we'll be looking at scope of practice, standards of practice, accountability, delegation, supervision, and clinical decision-making. So a question often asked is, um, in terms of scope of practice, where do I find my scope of practice? Or what is my scope of practice? People often ask others, educators, managers. There's no simple answer to that. Um, you won't find a, 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 it written anywhere specifically. Um, the reason for that is it's actually based upon your own individual credentials your own experiences, your own education, and it's also informed by policy, policy and legislation. So as we can see here, the scope of practice for nurses and midwives cannot be defined as a simple list of, list of tasks or procedures. The scope of nursing and midwifery practice is that in which nurses and midwives are educated, competent, and authorised to perform. So in terms of um, scope of practice, questions to ask yourself is, is this activity within my scope of practice? And how do I know? So do I feel trained and confident and competent to carry out this activity? If delegating a task, um, do I feel confident and competent in the staff member who I'm delegating to, to carry out that task? Do they feel confident and competent? 
have they been trained to carry out the task? If the answer is no to any of these questions, who should I then delegate the task to? Or should I be delegating that task at all? Does the activity fit within my context of practice? So to give an example from myself, I come from a background in child and family health nursing. So working in ICU certainly wouldn't be within my scope of practice. Or an ICU nurse being sent out to work in child and family health, that wouldn't be in their scope of practice. In terms of client health needs, questions to ask include, is the activity in the best interest of the client? Will it contribute to the best possible outcome for the client or the patient? Is there another activity that would be better? So should we be doing this activity at all? And am I working within best practice? And regarding level of confidence, education and qualification, this brings us back to the point do I feel I have the training and education and qualification required to attend to that task? Do I feel both confident and competent to carry out the task? And in terms of policies and procedures, am I working within the policies and the procedures of the organisation within which I'm working? And is this in keeping more broadly with New South Wales health policy both state and federal legislation. So these are the things we need to be aware of and factor into our decision-making process. Oops, double-clicked, I think. Sorry. keeps double-clicking. Apologies for that. I must be pressing the button too hard. Um, so there's sometimes confusion between scope of practice and standards for practice. So scope of practice is that in which nurses are educated, competent to perform and permitted by law. The actual scope of practice is influenced um, by the context in which, where you're practising, the health needs of the people, the level of comfort, com sorry, competence and confidence and the policy requirements of the service provider. Whereas the standards of practice are the expectations of registered nurse practice. So they inform the education standards for registered nurses, the regulation of nurses and midwives, I should say, and the determination of the, the nurse or the midwife's capability for practice and also guides consumers, employers and other stakeholders on what to reasonably expect from a um, nurse or midwife, re regardless of the area in which they're practicing or their years of experience. So, what does that all mean? So to simply state what that all means is that all nurses follow standards of practice, regardless of their area of specialty, regardless of their level of experience but each nurse will have a unique scope of practice based upon their area of specialty, their work and educational background and their level of experience within the context in which they work. So 
So this is just a little diagram that um, kind of, I guess, surmises scope of practice in a graphical way for those that prefer to, to look at charts rather than words. Um, so having the education to perform the task and being competent and confident to perform a task and being authorised to perform a task means that task fits within your scope of practice. So these factors help us to build an informed picture of what is within our scope of practice. So we move on to standards of practice. So there exists our core registration standards and then our standards of practice. So the core registration standards are our criminal record check, our English language proficiency, continuing professional development, you know, minimum 20 hours a year or per registration period, recency of practice, which um, the requirements are minimum of 450 hours of practice within the past five years, and professional indemnity arrangements. So the standards, so um, talking about the standards of practice, clearly indicate um, the standard of practice expected of the, the nurse, the midwife, the enrolled nurse, in relation to accountability, delegation and supervision. So the example here that I have of the registered nurse standards for practice consists of um, the following seven standards. So, that, so I'm going to just um, run through those quickly. So the standard one thinks critically and analyses their nursing practice or midwifery practice, engages in therapeutic and professional relationships, maintains the capability for practice, comprehensively conducts assessments, develop a plan for nursing practice, provides safe, appropriate and responsive quality nursing practice, and finally evaluates outcomes to inform nursing practice. So, as we know, it's a professional obligation to be familiar with um, your standards of practice. So these standards are all interconnected, as the diagram there that you can see suggests. So standards one, two and three relate to each other, as well as to each dimension of practice in standards four, five and six and seven. So, <clears throat> In, in terms of the discussion here, um, I won't go through the whole standards, we'll be here all day, um, but standard one thinks critically and analyses nursing practice. Under that standard, 1.4 talks about complying with legislation, reg, um, regulations, policies, guidelines and other standards or requirements relevant to the context of practice when making decisions. So that relates to the decision-making framework, very much so. So 1.6 maintains accurate, comprehensive, timely documentation of assessments, planning, decision-making, actions and evaluation. Um, an example from Standard 2, um, 2.6 uses delegation, which is very relevant here, supervision, coordination, 
consultation and referrals in professional relationships to achieve improved health outcomes. And an example from standard three maintains the capability for practice. RNs are responsible for their professional development and contribute to the development of others. So that does relate in terms of decision making. Do I have the education? Have I maintained that level to um, perform a task that I've been delegated? So um, an example under standard four, comprehensively conducts assessments. Um, 4.3 um, talks about working in partnership. And in terms of decision-making and delegating, that's very much working in partnership. Um, you know, the lines of communication need to be very open and backward and forward in informing um, appropriate delegation or assessing, you know, is this appropriate, is it not, whether you're the one being delegated to or delegating to someone else. Okay. Oops, double-clicked again. So this leads us on to accountability which is an, another important factor in terms of decision-making and the decision-making framework and delegation. So accountability means that nurses answer to the people in their care, nurses and midwives, the nursing regulatory authority, their employers and the public. Nurses and midwives are accountable for their decisions, actions, behaviours and the responsibilities that are inherent in their nursing roles, including documentation. It's important to be aware that accountability cannot be delegated. So when you delegate a role to someone, you're delegating the, the task, but you're not de delegating your accountability. So the nurse or midwife who delegates activities to be un undertaken by another person remains accountable for the decisions. Um, and for monitoring also the level of performance by the other person. And that will vary depending upon who you're delegating to, you know, what level of um, observation do they require. Um, you know, obviously that's based on their history, their um, training, education and so, so forth. So the person um, to which the activity is delegated remains responsible and accountable for what they do as well. It's very touchy, this. Um, so delegation is the relationship that exists when the nurse or midwife delegates aspect of their nursing practice to another person. Um, who may or may not be a nurse or a midwife, usually is, but depends on the context and the situation. Delegations are made to meet people's needs to enable access to the health services um, and that they um, are provided with the best possible care. 
So once we do get to the decision-making framework, um, you'll see that it can assist you if you're feeling pressured. And, and I know, depending upon where you work, some areas are more pressured than others. But if there's short staffing um, and there's pressure there, um, you, might, you might feel pressure from yourself. Um, you may feel pressure from peers, from management, um, to, to perform a task that you, you might not feel that you're quite um, experienced in or, or that it's, it's, it's not appropriate. So, so this tool is, is actually a really good tool to use because then you can go through the tool and um, go to your manager or your work colleague or whoever the case may be and say, hey, no, um, this isn't appropriate. And, and if I don't say something about this, well, then I'm accountable for that. So the nurse or midwife who is delegating remains accountable, as I've mentioned, and also for monitoring and of the communication of the delegation. Both parties share the responsibility of making the delegation decision. So you may um, delegate to someone and they may say, well, actually, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, it's a two-way two thing. The, the person being delegated to needs to accept the delegation. Um, so again, the decision-making framework assists in that process. Um, to ensure that appropriate delegation occurs. So the person who has been delegated the activity has appropriate level of knowledge, so skills and experience and competence, but also the legal authority to perform the activity. So that's where the legislation comes into it. So as we know, we work under the framework of, of law and legislation, and that's why you know registered nurses can do certain things, midwives can do certain things, ENs can do certain things. So obviously it all needs to fit in that overarching um, legal aspect. And I've already covered the rest that's on that slide. I won't go over it again. Okay, so delegation leads on to supervision. Um, you can't have delegation without supervision. So the delegator is supervising the person they are delegating to. So the role of supervision includes um, dependent upon the context and the individual who's been delegated to as to which of these, some or all are appropriate, but providing education so they may well be able to do the task, but they just need a little bit of education. Guidance and support for individuals who are performing the delegated activity is important, where appropriate. Um, directing their performance. So, you know, you might delegate a task to someone who, you know, you know that they're competent and confident, 
Um, so you might not have to give much direction, but if they've only done it once or twice or not at all, um, obviously the, the level of direction and um, education is going to be far greater. So monitoring and evaluating outcomes, especially the consumer's response to the activity. So it's important not to forget um, the patient in this or the client in this. Because um, this process is actually all about ensuring that they get the best care possible. And again, I've already mentioned both, both parties must agree to the level of um, focus supervision that will be provided. So it's important um, when delegating the person to whom the delegation is made understands their accountability and is willing to accept the delegation again just to reinforce that point. The recipient has the responsibility to negotiate in good faith, um, let the delegator know um, if they need education or teaching or competence assessment, the level of um, clinic, clinical supervision that they may need in that task. Also, it's their responsibility to notify you that if you're the delegator in a timely manner, if they're unable to perform the activity, either for ethical reasons or some other reason. Um, also, to, um, to be aware of the extent of the delegation and the associated monitoring and reporting requirements. Um, it's also their responsibility that they seek support um, and supervision until confident of their own ability to perform the activity. And also in, in cases where they may be delegated a task and there may be a de-escalation, a worsening of the condition, whatever that may be, of the patient, then it's their responsibility to feed back to you um, that. And then a decision's made whether um, it's still appropriate for that to be the delegation or does it need to change? Do you need to take that back, that role? And obviously, um, the person who's been delegated to, um, it's their responsibility to participate in evaluation of the delegation, ongoing evaluation. So in the context of supervision, we have direct supervision and we also have indirect supervision. So direct supervision is obviously where the supervisor is present and personally observes, guides and directs the person being supervised. Whereas indirect is when the supervisor works in the same facility or organisation as the supervised person but does not constantly observe their activities. The supervisor must be available though for reasonable access. So, you know, you still need to be quite readily available, whether that's on the phone or however that may work in your context. So yeah, reasonable access does depend on the context, the consumer needs and the needs of the person being supervised. So all of those need to be looked at in terms of what is reasonable access. Is, is phone access enough? Oh no, in this case it's not. You know, I'm in the, you know, I'm up the corridor or something, 
So again, that that would be indirect, but you're more readily available. So it depends on who you who you who you're delegating to as to what would be appropriate there. So in terms of indirect um, supervision and deciding deciding the appropriateness of that, it's based upon the again the person's work background, their educational background, their confidence and and competence to perform the task and the activity. And of course, again, um, making those decisions in the context of following policy, procedure and legislation to ensure that the delegation is appropriate. So how do you go about making those clinical decisions around delegation and practice? Well, I'm about to get to the tool. Told you it was a bit of a journey. Um, but there's, a, there's another point I'd like to make first. So in terms of clinical decision making, um, regarding available resources, you may have the ability to perform a task or delegate a task to someone, but resources may not be available to make the delegation appropriate. For example, um, you, you might work in a rural hospital and have a patient whose condition's deteriorating beyond the resources available. So you may have worked in the relevant specialist unit in a tertiary referral hospital and have the skills, the knowledge, and the training, but you don't have the resources. So in that context, the delegation wouldn't be appropriate. And you know, the escalation there would probably be, well, they've got to be sent to a, a city hospital with more resources. So it's all about the context. So to sum up, all decisions made by nurses and midwives must be lawful. Um, needs to be appropriate for the context, consistent with the professional standards, consistent with local and state policy, and lead to better health outcomes for clients. So all RNZNs and midwives are accountable for making decisions about their own practice and about what is in their own capacity and scope of practice. So what are the influences on delegation that you're faced with? Um, there's budget impacts and other influences that can affect the number of qualified staff available to provide the care. So it could be a staffing issue and there can be pressure on nurses and midwives to perform activities outside their scope of practice or role in which they were employed. So the decision-making framework provides a, a very useful tool to help negotiate workplace practices and limit this occurring. So, so again, in that context, um, we're all accountable as, as nurses and midwives for making decisions about our own practice and about what is within um, the individual worker's capacity and scope of practice. 
So this is why I can't stress enough the value of the tool as a very powerful tool to advocate for, for both yourself and for other people in terms of um, workplace practice and, and, okay, is what happening here, is it appropriate? That was the tool, you can see we're nearly there. So the Nursing and Mid Midwifery Board of Australia outlines eight national principles for decision-making tools. Of these eight principles, principle one and principle eight are relevant to you as an individual. So that is the decision-making framework guides nurses and midwives in making decisions about everyday practice, changes to practice over time to meet the health needs of the community, and that is um, part of the professional practice framework used by the National Board and in self-assessment of practice, stating explicitly and transparently the role of the tool in circumstances where a nurse or midwife may be called to account for their practice decisions. So in delegation, if you're in a position where delegation was found to be inappropriate, or follow-up did not occur, for example, an incident occurred and was brought before the Nursing and Midwifery Board, um, then you would be asked um, about your use of the decision-making framework. So that's why it's really important to be aware of it, because um, so, many, um, so many of the nurses and midwives out there aren't aware of it. And you'll be asked, what process did you go through in your delegation? So here we are, we're at the tool, finally. So, how does it work? So, you'll see um, where, it, hopefully you can read it, where, where it says competence, confidence and accountability. So I'll run through that. So are you confident um, that you or another RN's education, experience and competence are sufficient um, to safely perform this activity for this client in this context? Do you, the RN, understand your or their level of accountability? So, if you answer yes, okay, well then you perform the activity and you evaluate the outcomes. But if you answer no, okay, up the top you can see education, support and supervision. Could you or another RN perform the activity with further education um, or, or support or supervision or a combination of those by a more experienced RN? If it's no, refer the client to a more experienced RN to perform the activity and collaborate for ongoing care. Or in the, in the example I gave of, say, a rural hospital, there's a deteriorating patient, well, the appropriate thing to do might be, well, it's not appropriate there even here. They need to go somewhere else, the patient or the client. Obviously, if, if you answered yes, consult with a more experienced RN to obtain education, supervision and or support, perform the activity and evaluate the outcomes. And you can see here listed twice, there's the heading competence, confidence and accountability. So the one below it's 
in the context of the um, enrolled nurse as opposed to a registered nurse. So again, does, does the EN have the education experience and so forth? Does the EN understand the level of accountability um, for performing the activity? If yes, great. The EN performs the activity, the RN evaluates the outcome. If no, um, supervision. So could the EN perform the activity with RN support and supervision and education? Uh, if it's yes, are you or another RN able to provide that support? So you, you may well decide, okay, great, yep, we can go, go ahead, but then staffing's inadequate. So they're not going to get the support, the level of support, supervision or education that they need. So then if that's the case, then you go back down on the no line, down the bottom there, the RN performs the activity and evaluates the outcomes. So that's, that's, that's how you use the tool. So when you're using the tool, it's also important to, to, to use this in the context of the code of conduct and, and to be familiar with the code of conduct. So this is just a small part of the code of conduct that's relevant for, for this discussion. So this is a summary of decision-making principle 2.2, taken from the code of conduct. Um, so the first point, recognise and work within the scope of practice, which is determined by the education, training authorisation, competence, qualification and experience in accordance with local policy. Recognise when activity is not within the scope of practice and refer people to another health practitioner when this is in the best interest of the person receiving care and take reasonable steps to ensure any person to whom a nurse delegates, refers or hands over care has the qualifications, experience, knowledge, skills and scope of practice to provide the care that's needed. So in summary, effective clinical decisions must take into account the available evidence, the context of the care, the resources available, the needs of the clients and the nurse's clinical expertise. 